Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 21st, 2020. I want to remind listeners you can get your Econ Talk merchandise at russroberts.info, where I archive all my work, so feel free to look around if you go there. My guest today is Stephen Levitt. He is the William B. Ogden Distinguished Service Professor in Economics, the winner of the John Bates Clark Medal in 2004, a prize for the best economist under the age of 40. And with Stephen Dubner, he is the author of the, Freakonom- the book Freakonomics and the creators of all things Freakonomic. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the Freakonomics phenomenon. Why do you think your book caught fire? Mostly luck, honestly. I think we're in the right time, uh, right place at the right time. And <clears throat> we, um, you know, in some sense, I think what made it different from many other economics books is that Dubner's a real journalist, and he he can write like almost nobody else can. And I think the the particular nature of the kind of studies that I've done academically tend to lend themselves to storytelling. And we, um, you know, and so I think we wrote an entertaining, informational, educational book. But really, you can't really attribute it to anything other than luck that certain things happen. Like I happened to go on the Daily Show with John Stewart and. He made me seem like a hero. And so a lot of young people started picking up the book. So, you know, it was a lot of um, happenstance. Um, you know, it's good. I mean, no complaints on my side, that's for sure. Well, I have a complaint because for about five years, uh, when I tell somebody I was an economist, they'd say, have you read Freakonomics? What do you think of it? <laughs> uh, I, unfortunately for you, that, that's been, that's, that question's become less frequent. But it was frequent enough. You did, you did do extremely well. And I think you really um, – I didn't realize this. I don't know if it's true. I get, like your reaction. I, I think you were very early on, you and Dubner, in the um, the popularizing book that takes a bunch of social science studies and reveals them for the listener, the reader. Uh, I think you were Malcolm Gladwell before Gladwell. No, Gladwell was before us because when um, when we first thought about writing the book, uh, Stephen Dubner said, "Hey, read this book by Malcolm Gladwell." Yeah. And and I read Gladwell's book, and it was um, and it was surprising to me because I hadn't thought about that as a book. I thought about writing books before, but they'd always they'd never been so popularizing or so journalistic. And so, uh, indeed, Gladwell was was there before us. And, and indeed, to, to, to thank Gladwell for what he did to help us. I mean, his blurb on the front of our book, um, I'm sure, had a huge impact on our success as well. Yeah, that might be hard to test. Uh, <laughs> but I've always wondered whether blur- blurbs are fun. I, I don't know whether they work or not. Obviously, publishers think they do. Um, what was the reaction from your colleagues in the profession? You know, I have a similar route. I'm not as successful as you are, but I've popularized a lot of, of economics. And I, in the early days, and, and your book was in the early days somewhat of that, uh, it was considered somewhat untoward 
to, quote, waste your time speaking mm-hmm. to a popular audience. And Chicago is a particularly, uh, having been a, a student there, it's a particularly snobby place with a high regard for the academic life. Did, did you take flack for the book? Not as much as you might think, actually. I think my colleagues already held me in such low regard that I couldn't really push myself any further. I mean, because I've always been, mm. uh, I mean, I'm kind of joking about that. My colleagues, I, I think they like me okay, but I'm, I'm different. They treat me as different. Like, I'm kind of held to a different standard. And, and they had come to expect just about anything from me. So I think they weren't so surprised. I mean, it wasn't, uh, um, you know, and it, ultimately it was interesting. So the book got kind of popular and, and, uh, and it made so much sense to teach a course, like a Freakonomics course, to the undergrads. It would have had a huge enrollment. And the chair at the time came into my office and said, hey, just so you know, um, you are not going to teach a Freakonomics undergrad course. And I said, why not? And he said, well, for starters, I'm not going to have you profit from selling your book to the students. Uh, and I said to him, I mean, just being honest, I make a dollar a copy from the paperback, <laughs> and we've already sold six million copies. Yeah, so I think- <laughs> if you want me to donate the hundred dollars, if the thing that's keeping us from giving our students what they want is the hundred dollars I'm going to earn in royalties, I would be happy to donate to the, to the barman. So, but I think it was part of a broader view that, um, look, this was kind of fun, but a Chicago view that like. Economics is serious, and um, and uh, you know this wasn't serious enough. But um, look, I think I think there are many reactions to the book. Um, one very common reaction is, look, I'm a better economist than Levitt, so if I write a book, I'm going to sell like 10 million copies. So I think there are a lot of people who have written books that wouldn't have otherwise. A lot of people have gotten some pretty big advances on books as well. That's I think, probably true. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, you know, another set of people have said, look, I don't really like Freakonomics, but the fact is, um, a lot of people, a lot of kids read the book and it led some of them to be economics majors. And the supply of economics faculty is pretty limited in the short run and the, the demand for our, our product went up. So maybe love it's not so bad after all, you know, so. Um, uh, you, you said your colleagues see you as different. How are you different? Well, the way in which I am different, I don't know if it's how my colleagues see me, is I'm, I'm somehow not really an economist in the usual sense of the word. Um, I'm, I, uh, obviously, I, I've studied economics. I, I know basic economics. But I'm really m- always been more driven by data and by almost maybe, I don't sociological is it's the wrong word. Not, not sociological in the sense of the discipline of sociology, but sociological in the sense of very interested in, in society and culture in a way that many economists haven't been. Really, and you know, I know Gary Becker was your advisor, so very much in the spirit of, yeah. of Becker, although the, the tools I've used have been very different. And so I've, I've just never been that interested in economic systems um, as much as I have been in using economic tools to study questions that are are further afield than what, you know, I'm really at the edges. You know, almost everything I've done, you could look at it and question whether it's economics or not. Yeah, um, that's a, a fascinating way to think about it. I want to go back to your your conversation with the, with the uh, chair about the undergraduate class. Um, two things come to mind. One is Robert Frank has taught that class for a long time. He doesn't teach the way you do, but his idea of the economic naturalist, the idea that 
economics is about going into the world and finding puzzles and thinking about how understanding incentives or markets might help us get a better grasp of what's really going on is a beautiful idea. It's also the same, the essence. When I went to Chicago in, uh, when I showed up in 1976, that was a huge part of the core exam was tricky puzzles like, you know, why are women's dry cleaning costs higher than men's and to see whether you could create, craft a narrative around it. What's different about what you've done is, as you just confessed, you're not so interested in crafting the economic narrative, I would say, outside of incentives matter, which obviously is a crucial part of economics, not the whole thing, but that you wanted to bring data to bear on these questions in a way that, that many economists hadn't before. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah, I I think what um, absolutely. So I think I've I've always been driven by puzzles and and w- with the caveat that look I'm in, I'm in an economics department so I've always asked myself are these puzzles that relate to economics and so I've 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 tried to really constrain myself to puzzles that relate to economics but but you're right incentives have obviously been a huge part of of what I've thought about and. Um, you know, externalities I think have have been present a lot of what I've been been thought about, and um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people call me a behavioral economist, a behavioral economist, but I'm not really. I mean, I've done very little that fits into um, behavioral economics with a capital B. I, I, going back to Becker, uh, Becker and I used to joke that he was a behavioral economist with a lowercase b. Like he was just interested in behavior. And I think that's the same kind of thing with me. I'm interested in behavior, but rarely have I actually used many of the tools that behavioral economists have um, have exploited. Well, yeah, we're all behavioral economists now, but with a lowercase b and e. <laughs> yeah. uh, in fact, in a yeah. recent conversation you had with, with Dubner on your podcast, and we'll talk about your podcast in a little bit, but uh, you, you suggested that the impact of behavioral economics, at least in the capital B sense, meaning nudging and taking advantage of maybe what people see as irrationality, uh, is not been very effective, that the magnitudes are small. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I just think empirically. So a, a lot of the basis for behavioral economics has come out of laboratory experiments. And in laboratory experiments, you often can generate really big impacts on uh, on behavior and what people do. In the real world, when we've gone out and tried to do nudges of various kinds, with with the clear exception of defaults, which are enormously powerful, that if you just like sign people up for for uh, retirement savings, opt it out. has an incredibly big impact. Opt out versus opt, opt in. Opt out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all of, that's really big. But, but most of the stuff that people have tried to exploit, you know, and others might disagree, but my, my empirical experience with loss aversion and with, you know, trying to, you know, use subtle framing effects, um, really, um, haven't, haven't yielded very much in terms of empirical results. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that you can use, you know, social, um, social shaming and stuff like that you know, on, in letters about paying your taxes or about energy usage by a couple percent, but, but it's no miracle. Um, and, and I think that the, the interest, I, I think behavioral economics is really interesting. I think there's no getting around the fact that it is fascinating and it, it intrigues many people and it is enticing. So when I talk to companies, almost every company I talk to approaches me and they say, we would love to use the tricks and insights of behavioral economics to revolutionize what we do. And I usually say to them, look, I'm, 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 I'll try to help you with that. But honestly, I think 
oftentimes the, the tricks and the miracles of regular economics are, um, are a better place to start because there's, there's often a lot more power and just getting the incentives right and getting prices right, uh, uh is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, what in I, many cases, what I love about, what I love about your, uh, your approach, uh, is that you understand that incentives aren't just monetary incentives. I think a lot of people use our mantra of incentives matter in a straw man version and say, well, you know, this price change, people didn't change or whatever, forgetting the fact that, of course, prices and monetary incentives take place in a social setting with where norms, guilt, shame, reputation matter. And it's only bad economists who think it's all money. <laughs> uh, you said that, not me, but um, I agree uh, that um, okay, it's it's almost reductio ad absurdum to, to when you yeah. say incentives. You know, the way I use the word incentives, I use it to cover everything. Um, but it, it's I think it's not reductio ad absurdum because it's actually right. It's actually true that there are social incentives, and then there's also uh, kind of moral incentives. And so, given that the, the, the kind of those three things, financial, moral, and social incentives, essentially cover more or less the universe of things that lead people who are, you know, paying attention to do the things they do. And so, yeah. like, I, I think, um, you know, what I, what I loved about Nudge in particular, and I know maybe you're not track, but what I thought was interesting about Nudge is that until I, I talked to Thaler about what he was doing, even before I wrote the book, I'd always thought of our toolkit as economists, essentially, you know, it had, you know, there were there were you could try to you know do incentives or I mean you could you know pass a law you know and use like prohibitions or various ways but but Thaler's insight I thought was a really good one which is a lot of times it's just easier to trick people into doing what you want them to do than to actually you know either like educate them uh, use information or or to change incentives and and that's actually a really important insight because I think one of the you know, especially when the time that you and I were being educated in economics, a lot of the stuff was like full information, complete information. We kind of we kind of assumed that people were paying attention and they were doing a good job of things. You know, not that they were necessarily perfect, but that they were at least thinking about stuff. And I think Thaler's insight is like people people are busy and they're not even thinking about stuff. So just just trick them. You know, just just like make do it when they're not looking, and you can get <laughs> relatively big impacts. Which you know, I think you have to. Ethically, you got to worry a little bit about that because yeah. is it really the right thing to do? But I think in terms of actually getting stuff done, uh, I now have that kind of at the top of my toolkit. Is if if I want to get something done, I think how can I how can I trick people? How can I how can I just get something done by changing it without anybody noticing? And I think uh, you know there aren't that many things where I think I'm smarter than you know, where I think I know better than everybody else and, and um, where I actually want to impose my will on people. But in those cases, um, look, I think. The nudge approach is, is really, really genius. Uh, the only thing that I think I know better than other people is that I don't know much more than anybody else. <laughs> but um, I, don't, um, I don't agree with that, that tricking part. I'm, and I'll let you defend it in a second. I think, you know, it's interesting. I was trained. The, you can't trick anybody. People are rational. That's the full information uh, um, extreme version that, that you gave. And I, that's always been my starting point as, a, as an economic naturalist. Doesn't mean it's my ending point, but I always start with, I'd rather have a theory 
that people aren't stupid, that people, I rather avoid the theory that people are stupid or they make this mistake systematically or they make it over and over again. It's not in their self-interest. And so I've changed. I do know that people do get tricked now and then, but I think it's hard to trick people. And I think what markets do is make it harder to trick people. It, it you know, the incentives that emerge out of markets are, are going to protect people from exploitation. It's true. They could still pay a stupid price if they ignore the market opportunities, but um, mm -hmm. I'm much less, uh, uh, I'm not as pure as I used to be, but I've never, I haven't gone nearly as far as, as, as you suggest. And I, and you just told me though, that doesn't work very well. So wait, wait, wait so defend your, your, your uh, idea. We can trick people. Sure. Okay. So first, uh, when I say maybe give us people, an example, I yeah. want to, I want, I'm not actually saying taking advantage of people that is stupid. Okay, so so I agree. I, I'm in basic agreement with what you said that for sure markets are an enforcement mechanism that keeps um, keeps um, exploitation yeah. under uh, within limits. Okay, so in particular, I'm not really thinking about market settings uh, as I talk about this. The second thing is that I'm not thinking about people making mistakes and being stupid. I'm actually thinking more about inattention. I think Thaler's real insight hmm. is that inattention is really important because it doesn't actually make sense for people like you and me to 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 fumble around around the edges of exactly what's in our food or um, is one you know shaving cream doing some particular thing different a little few, you know so I think there's a lot of things where we just kind of assume that, so like I think you and I both assume that markets are going to take care of stuff. And so we don't worry about a lot of it. But, but I was more thinking about cases where we're not really in markets, but instead we're relying somehow on, you know, going back to the classic case, which is for retirement, right? So we, we take a job. We don't know anything in particular about um, retirement savings, but there's someone in HR and that person's a real expert, right? They've spent their life going to seminars and studying uh, retirement. And so when they tell me that I should do this, I'm like, ah, okay. And then honestly, I never look at it again. And so it's, it's not really that I'm necessarily, you know, it's not that I'm thinking about it. It's not that I'm stupid. It's just that I've ceded control because life is complicated. And I think we do it a lot with the medical profession too, oh, yeah. often to our detriment, um, yeah. where if you just listen to doctors, you end up doing crazy things. <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah. you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, well, I, I was gonna give you, I mean, I've got so many examples of, of the medical profession. I probably shouldn't even go there because they're the kind of things you'll have to censor out, uh, afterwards. But, um, <laughs> but, um, so that's what I really mean. That it just that the world is complicated and that when there's opportunity cost, people aren't paying much attention. And so around the edges, but look on fundamental things, um, I, I agree with you completely that markets are really the best, um, insurance we have, uh, you know, protection against exploitation, which is kind of the opposite of what many people. Yeah. How, how many people think of markets? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I just read an article by uh, Canadian journalist David Cayley about the pandemic. I'm just going to digress on this. We'll come back in a second to our main theme. But he's talking about the pandemic and um, the way I would summarize what, and we'll, I hope we'll, you and I will talk about that, the pandemic in particular, in a, in a little bit. But he talks mm -hmm. about how, the way I would phrase it, uh, we've been trusting scientists, but not science. That there's so much uncertainty around the pandemic, and the voice of science is, scientists are very loud, and people go, "Well, they're scientists, 
So I guess they're talking science. But of course, in many cases, there's a lot of uncertainty around what they're saying. And in fact, sometimes they're just simply wrong uh, on, and we, you know, the question would then be, which scientists? There's scientists on both sides saying some really bizarre <laughs> opposite things. And and I think it it taps into a, a deeper cultural question that you're raising there, which is for most of our lives that you and I have been alive, you know, we trusted experts. We just said, well, that, you know, that person in HR, that's their field. I don't need to look into this. I'll just trust them. And we're living in a time now where you know, we've had Yuval Levind on the program talking about this and Martin Gorey. Expertise is dying. Uh, it's been betrayed to some extent by the, the practitioners. Uh, it's also been overwhelmed by the information tsunami that, that we're surrounded by, as Gorey calls it. And so, Everything's kind of up for grabs now. It's interesting to think about how policy and nudging and um, incentives are going to work in a world where people are really skeptical about what people who they used to trust, what, you know, what they actually know. Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. And uh, let's go back to medicine for a second. The, um, if you are diagnosed with some relatively rare thing, um, you will, you can know more about that, that, malady than your general practice yeah. practitioner doctor for sure in about a day you know <laughs> it's, it's like you know, a day of really hard study about something and you know a lot about it and um uh which is the beauty i mean it's it's the wonder and the amazing value of the internet is the is how available information has become and how it can be used to help individuals who have who, who are seeking information so uh, i actually so i well i agree with you that the it, it is it is sad that in many cases expertise has been politicized or or distorted i'm i'm not sure that wouldn't have been true in the past i mean i can go back I'll give you another example. So after our second book, Super Free Economics, came out, and we wrote about climate change. And what was interesting, going back to the idea of scientists, so there's something called, I think it's called the Union of Concerned Scientists yes. or something like that, That's which is a, a, um, a, a, a um, and look, as far as I could tell, there were no scientists involved in the critique of what we were saying about climate change. It was purely a uh, propaganda exercise to try to discredit us. But but because they were called the Union of Concerned Scientists, um, they were treated with the, the dignity of, of science. And, <laughs> and and everyone seemed to ignore the fact that the, the articles we were citing, I mean, we weren't doing our own research, we were citing articles that had been in Nature and Science, and these were by top, top scientists in the area. Um, but I will say that was a case where by you strategically in, in exactly the thing I think that you're speaking against, like the strategic use of the reputation of science to, um, to destroy things that the people who are, who are arguing want destroyed, regardless of truth, regardless of whether, you know, right and wrong, um, was used incredibly effectively. I mean, we, I've never lost a debate the way I lost, uh, the debate to the, to the, um, environmentalists. I mean, uh, and honestly, partly I, uh, I regret the, you know, we wrote it really poorly. The way we wrote about it, um, it's kind of triggered people to be very against it. I think of all the things I've ever argued, I've never been more right about anything than what we said about climate change, which is that, 
it was going to keep on going and all of the, the 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 cries that everyone should just like do the right thing were not going to work. I mean, as economists, we all know that just asking people to do the right thing when the benefits accrue to other people never really works. And that, you know, that there, if, if we're going to have a solution, it's probably going to be a technological solution. Um, and I think actually what's interesting is that the entire, the whole world has moved in that direction in the last 10 years. I mean, I think we've come to agree more and more that's true, even environmentalists. But, um, but uh, you know, it, it, for a long time, people have been using science as a weapon to cudgel. fight things they don't like, even when it has little to do with science. Yeah, it's a cudgel. I reminds me when I was once interviewed by a reporter on some issue related to international trade. And in the middle of the interview, the reporter had a moment of unease and said, wait a minute, you, you are an expert, aren't you? <laughs> I thought, how do I answer that question? I thought. Do I claim I'm an? And then I said, "Well, I've written a book on international trade." Oh, okay. She was totally reassured because <laughs> that made me an expert, even though it was a popular, mainly a popularizing yeah. book of the ideas of compared advantage, and you know, was not was not what I would call research. But she was reassured because she could then yeah. put Roberts, the author of, you know, she's okay. Um, you know, thinking about <laughs> you mentioned medicine and and our ability to have knowledge. You know, it's such a, a tragic example to me of where the incentives and feedback loops that would normally protect consumers from egregious uh, overdiagnosis and over-testing other things. You know, the, the benefits typically accrue to the doctor, sometimes to the patient, but sometimes not so much with side effects and negative uh, outcomes, sometimes of those tests. And, um, and yet, I think emotionally... We, we have a trust of, of that person as a, quote, scientist, a doctor, that it's being eroded through the Internet and other <laughs> bad behavior. But, but those incentives there really, I think, play into it a lot. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've written about is about chemotherapy and how much chemotherapy is relatively ineffective, Tragic. has enormous side effects, and and, Incredibly and, expensive. and the crazy incentive system whereby doctors get get part of the revenue that's generated from the sale of those. I mean, it's really it's a crazy system. I think if if people knew more about it, I don't think they'd be um, very open to that system. Oh, it's a it's a way I see it, which is so depressing. It's a way that often the doctor's reaching into the taxpayer pocket. The taxpayer's not in the room, right? The Medicare payment, unnegotiated price set by the pharmaceutical company um, for an extra two months of life instead of using the existing treatment, which is a fraction of the cost, is um, it's, it's, a, it's a bad, bad system. We, it, it's yeah. going to be hard to fix, but it's a bad system. And on Econ Talk and on your podcast, we're, we're trying to spread a little education. You're spreading a little more than I am because the size of your audience, but we're all do, trying to do our part. And it's, um, it's hard because the, and plus the, you know, the vested interests there are, are, are extremely tough. Uh, did you, going back to our old thread, did you teach that undergraduate class after that, that incredibly generous offer to share the royalties from the 100 copies with the department? <laughs> No, I've never taught a course on Freakonomics. Uh, with John List, we did eventually um, teach a course of economics for non-economics majors. Uh -huh. It's the University of Chicago, and kind of yeah. I think the view is that everyone should have one economics course. We've never been part of the, the core economics. It chose not to be part of the core yeah. first-year classes. And um, 
And uh, I'm probably not even supposed to say this, but I'll say it anyway. I'll let it, uh, you know, so they changed the incentives at the university so that, um, that to the department, there was a benefit from having more students take our courses. We, we started getting paid on the margin. So when that happened, John and I said, well, why don't we teach a course that'll be really popular among non-economists? And so we did that. Uh, I think the first year we had something like 500 students signed up for it, which, which turned out to be worth a lot to the department. And a really fun course to teach because John's a good friend of mine. And, um, and we just tried to, we both believe in the ideas of economics as being really powerful. Um, and I, I think our own profession has a little bit gotten lost in, in technicality and in, um, in, in, in focusing on things that are hard and in liking things that are hard. But the basic ideas, I mean, you've, I mean, no one more than you has been kind of been focused on on the basic ideas of economics and how to bring whether it's comparative advantage or incentives or um you know how how effective prices can be at at um you know solving problems so we it was really fun so we we have been teaching this course now for five four or five years and um and in that course we do give i give away um, PDF versions of free economics for free and John gives away free versions of of his book um as well. Um, but it's not really a free economics course in the sense that we're, it's like really in some sense more economics than free economics because it's really trying to teach, you know, what we think are the 10 or 12 core ideas of economics. But, but without any math, uh, simply taught is like, these are powerful ideas and, and you should, you should have them in your toolkit as you approach life. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm relieved that, uh, that, it's more than a hundred. When you said you were going to give the hundred, I, I thought maybe there'd be a thousand students. So five hundreds, five hundreds, is um, is not too bad. I tell you, I'll tell you about the hundred. Though. So the reason I said a hundred students is that um, for the most part, when we were doing in-person learning, uh, the limit on class size was determined by classrooms, and and the tip, the biggest. Classrooms that are easily available to the econ department in Chicago are about 80, 80 to 100 seats in them. And yeah. so, um, so it's always been really frustrating to me that, um, that there are many students who want to take my course. I teach a course on economics of crime, which is quite popular. And, uh, and I have to limit it every year. And so one year I, I pushed harder and there's actually, one or two huge rooms and I got access to one of those huge rooms and I had, you know, 300 students in the class. And, um, and the same chairman who didn't want me to teach free economics, um, the next year came around and I saw that I had been reassigned to an 80, uh, an 80 person classroom. And I went to him and I said, Hey, this doesn't really make sense. We got students who, 300 students who want to take the class. And he said, well, the problem is, all the other faculty members got really upset because there were hardly any students in their classes and they complained so much that I'm going to lower you back down to 80 again. And I said, socialist, this is the University of Chicago <laughs> Department of Economics. And our solution is to not let people have what they want, uh, not to have, shouldn't the teachers try to teach something that students want to go to? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was, I've had about maybe three or four of those defining moments where everything I believe <laughs> about Chicago economics um, is turned on its head in the actual practice of life by Chicago economists who are great in their papers yeah. at acting like Chicago economists, but awful in real life. I, can I give you another example of something sure. around this? We were thinking about... You have tenure, uh, right? A, a really... I have tenure. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And we have a really fantastic guy who was coming up, who was young, but was coming up getting outside tenure offers, um, potentially. Um, and so we had a senior faculty meeting 
And um, and so we decided to vote him unanimously with almost no discussion to give him an untenured uh, associate position. Okay? And um, the problem was that it was clear that other places were going to make him tenured offers. And it was also clear to me that um, if other places made him tenured offers first and we only responded, it would hurt our bargaining position and convincing him to stay relative to preempting those offers. So I said, um, hey – um, let me just ask you, like, if he didn't do any other work <laughs> in three years, do you not think that this body of work he's already done would be good enough for tenure? And like, basically everyone agreed. And I said, so just trying to do backward induction in three years, we're going to vote him tenure, even if he does nothing in between. Does that not mean we shouldn't vote him tenure now? And, um, and perhaps the world's greatest rational economics macroeconomist said, he's not ready for tenure. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. He's not ready for tenure. Even though backward induction told you that he would, with 100% probability, he would be ready for tenure in three years. I'm not even sure what that means, but it was one of those moments I'll never forget where I think, how is it? It, it actually makes me understand why economists maybe hold so little sway in policy and in the way the world works when even in the University of Chicago Department of Economics, we make decisions that are completely at odds with anything. I mean, I'll give you another example. I've sat in meetings where 10 faculty members who combined have an, an, an outside wage option of, you know, I don't know, $15,000 an hour have sat for an hour arguing about how to allocate $250 worth of stuff. And, <laughs> and at the end, I finally said, look, this is my answer to everything. Hey, look, I'll just, write you, uh, I'll just write you a check for $250 and one side can have it, the other side can have it. Like, this makes no sense. Why are we sitting here doing this? So, um, but, you know, that's with what's the old phrase that people who do do and people who you know, can't do, advise, or whatever it is. So anyway, that's kind of what I feel like with some of the people in Chicago. They were, they're really good. They're incredible economists, but but common sense has not always been at the um, the top of the list of, of Chicago economics. Yeah, well, the market forces don't always impinge on those small decisions, but that faculty member who you didn't vote tenure for, it wasn't a free lunch. I'm sure that Absolutely. Uh, you paid a price for that. Um, and it reminds me of the famous line, which I've never fully understood, but it seems relevant here. Why are uh, academic fights uh, so vicious? Because the stakes are so small. Um, there's a lot there. We'll, we'll just leave that alone for listeners. To It's kind of a Zen thing. Hmm. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that alone. I, I, before we leave for economics, and I, I want to talk about your new ventures next. But before we leave for economics, I want to take an example from the book that, that's always uh, bothered me. Hmm. Steve, I have to confess. Uh, and I'm going to give you a, a real-life um piece to it that I think will intrigue you. At least I had never heard it before. So this is the argument you make in the book that when a real estate agent is selling a house that she herself owns, it, it's her, her name's on the title, versus a house where she's representing a client and is going to get a commission. When she's selling her own house, if she charges an extra $25,000 for the house, she gets the whole $25,000. If she sells the client's house for an extra 25000 she all only gets the commission of that, which is quite small. So 
your argument is that there's a uh, tension, uh, a, a misalignment of incentives where the agent wants to set a lower price for the house than the owner when it's she's representing a client because it'll move more quickly. Uh, and when she sells her own house, she's going to be willing to wait a little bit longer because she gets the whole twenty five thousand. Is that a good summary of the argument? Mm-hmm. And you yeah, find absolutely. and you find that the, the data seems to suggest that. Although, of course, it's really hard to, to test it. You do the best you can you have to make some assumptions and so on. I never liked it because, in my view, going back to what we talked about before, people are relatively rational. They're, I think most people are aware that they don't have their agent may not share their incentives when they. In, Agents compete, they're trying to get clients, and therefore they tend to not be able to exploit customers in that way. That, that's my response. That's neither here nor there. We could go into the weeds of the, of the actual study. I'm not interested in that. But I want, I want to tell you what my sister said, who's, who's a real estate agent, because I, I was so fascinated by it. First, she said, well, if you set too high a price for the house, it's just not going to sell. It doesn't matter how long you wait. And I said, but isn't it? I mean, it's not, she says that's not going to. It's not that you wait longer because you can get a high, you get a higher price if you wait longer. I said, well, but isn't there the chance that the perf, perfect person will come along who falls in love with the house and and will pay that premium and you just wait for it? She said, yeah, but that's so. I mean, that, that's a terrible idea. I said, well, what do you think of this finding? And she gave me a twist on I've never heard before. She said, oh well, when I sell my own house, I'm a seller. I overestimate the value of my house because I think it's worth more than it really is. But when I'm selling it for a client, they too think it's worth more, but I can tell them, no, you're crazy. Whereas when I'm selling my own house, I don't have anybody to reel me in, to calm me down. So I thought that was an amazing behavioral economics twist on the standard one. Have you ever heard that argument before? I've never heard anyone say that. That's so um, awesome. It, it, it does make sense, <laughs> of course. In if you go back to the Chicago version no, of it, well, no. then obviously your your um, your sister sister in law she should um, pick the she right price. hire an agent, right? I mean, she'd hire an agent then if if, if an agent's <laughs> worth it to. Um, I mean, obviously, if she's if she has enough sense to know that she's falling prey to it again, it's it gets complicated. But um, yeah, that's true uh, too. Yeah, but she can't help herself. Because her emotional, <laughs> you know, reaction, she knows it's, and plus to admit to herself that she needs her own age. I mean, that would be, that'd be jarring. Yeah. Anyway, let's yeah. shift, let's shift gears. I, I want to talk about, oh, before I do, a number of people on Twitter asked him what I should ask you. So I just, I want to ask this before we leave for economics. There are a lot of interesting and, and dramatic and, and provocative and hidden phenomena that you illuminate in, uh, in free economics. Uh, a number of years have passed. Are there any of them that you want to say you've changed your mind on? You don't think they're true anymore? Just for, for the so-called record, or do you think they've mm-hmm. they sta- they've stood you the know, test of time, or do you, you want to be agnostic about it? You know, I think that the, the um, most of the things that were research based, um, all of the things that are research based that I have more evidence on, I think I think have stood the test of time. Whether it's campaign spending or legalized abortion or other things. I think the, the new evidence, I'd love to talk about the new evidence on legalized abortion. It's, it's, um, um, it's not, but that's not the answer to this question. I tell you that the two things that are just plain wrong in the book, and it's really interesting, is there are two things that are not based on data or analysis. So <laughs> um, the one was what we did on the, on the KKK, and it turns out that um, the, the, the gentleman who had supposedly done these amazing things to infiltrate the KKK. 
uh, and Stetson Kennedy. And, and we had based that on some historical record and talking with him and whatnot. Look, the, after we wrote the book, somebody came to us, a, a historian of Florida, who said, hey, a lot of these things Stetson Kennedy said aren't true. And we actually took it really seriously. And we went and investigated and um, we we talked to him and uh, he threatened to sue us if we, um, you know, we were going to write. So we ended up writing a piece in the New York Times saying, look, uh, we had relied on a bunch of sources. They turned out that, look, it was true that somebody did infiltrate the Klan, but I think it was someone else. And Stetson Kennedy kind of stole that person's identity ex post and started telling it like his own story. Um, that and the other thing is that we talked, uh, we had a, 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 a leading sociologist who swore up and down to me that he personally had met Arangelo and Lamangelo. Um, the, 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 the two African-American children whose names were spelled orange jello and lemon jello. And look, I would never have put a, um, an urban myth knowingly into the, into this thing. But like literally this guy has studied like the black power movement and I, he was completely and totally incredible. I, I have spent a lot of time and effort. I've offered large prizes of financial rewards to anyone who can produce Lamangelo and, and Orangelo. And I am completely convinced that it's just an urban legend. So what's what's funny is that the things that I regret now that are wrong are um are the things that were like well researched journalism as opposed to actual academic research. But but um I can't think of anything um of my own research that is in there that I would say now no actually that's just plain wrong. Well, like my sisters. Steve, you might you might have trouble evaluating your own objective sense of that. <laughs> there are people who criticize different parts of that of your research. Obviously, they could be wrong too. But more generally, uh, you know, psychology has gone through uh, is going through the so called replication crisis. We have Brian Nozick on the program a couple times talking about it. Um, I followed it fairly closely because I'm fascinated by it and it fits my priors shame, shamefully, but that's being honest. Um, I, I am uncomfortable with the ease with which many economists, um, tout the credibility of of statistical analysis, um, for policy purposes. Ironic, given that you said earlier, the economists haven't been very successful. I think we, I think we're the, often the most power, I think we're certainly the most powerful social scientists. Um, we may not influence policy the way we think we ought to be able to, but, um, are you uneasy about any of that? Do you think that, that some of the findings that, not yours, but in general, in, in, in econometrics will stand up. And, I, you know, part of my issue is how would you know? You know, it, unlike, a, a, you know, a, a psychology uh, experiment where you can theory can replicate it, a lot of our analyses are, of course, natural experiments or not experiments at all, just attempts to control for factors via econometric uh, technique. Are you, are you, do you worry about that at all? Yeah, just let's do to the most narrow version of it. Like, could you actually, if you started from scratch, take most academic economic papers and actually get to the numbers that they get? And I think the answer is no. I mean, uh, yeah. that we we deal with replication in a much narrower sense. So now, when you publish in a journal, they ask you to put your data set, and and replication means is. Is there code that you've created that if somebody presses a button, it will actually give the numbers on the tables? Okay, and so that's and really so narrow. That that's, <laughs> that's very narrow. Okay, so then you go back further. 
there's a, a thousand choices that happen over the course of, um, you know, and million, you know, thousands of lines of code that can go wrong. So I think uh, my hunch is that most, if not all papers, have enormous numbers of mistakes in them, okay? And so the question is, to what extent are those mistakes mistakes that lead you to a very different answer yeah. versus just mistakes that maybe, I mean, I've made mistakes. One of the big mistakes I made in a paper was actually uh, a mistake in a paper nobody cared about, but <laughs> and somebody pointed out later, but I had I had not fully understood that there had been a, a change in the way the accounting was done on, on, on some time series. Happens all the uh, time. Which led my answers to only be about half as big <laughs> as um, as they should have been. Yeah. You know, because usually, uh, most of the time, when you make mistakes, they end up, you know, pushing you towards zero rather than away from zero. Um, so, uh, you know, I, but I think, so, look, on, the, on every level, I think replication is unlikely to happen on, on most things. Okay, and so... So that's always been my view is that a good basis for research is to allow a reader to um, see as much of the raw data as possible. This is assume you did a good job on the raw data, okay? Yeah. And just to start by saying, here, here's what's in the raw data. And let me show you every step I make along the way. And, I, and, and by the time we're done, my own personality will be heavily injected into whatever I've done and my beliefs and how I like to do yeah. things. But I'm going to start by showing you the raw data. I want to show you how it changes at every step. And I think that's one defense against um, this kind of problem. I mean, I also wanted... I thought, you know, I'm not very socially minded. I'm not very public goods minded in general. But I, if I were, I think I would have started a journal of, just like a journal of replications yeah. in economics, where um, where you publish them when they work. I mean, the problem with replications in economics is if you replicate something and it works, no one's interested Nobody in cares. seeing it. And so, it's um, incentives. It, it, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you the craziest thing of all, and this is what disturbs me more about economics and replication than anything else. So John Lister and I, I won't name the author. I mean, I probably should because he hasn't suffered nearly as much as he should for his misdeeds. But um, in two separate occasions, there were papers published in top journals that John Liston and I essentially thought must be fabricated because the results were so outrageous. Uh, and they were both experimental papers. So John and I went back with co-authors and we redid these experiments. And not only did we find, you know, not replicate, but in, in one particular case, um, this paper had found that if if chess masters um, were playing a, a what's called the caterpillar game, which is you could imagine is a backward induction game, yeah. that they played it perfectly, like twenty out of twenty stopped on the first move, whereas regular people never do that. But look, it didn't make any sense because, among other things, uh, my my cousin is a world class chess player, Oops. and he says, look. Cheating is rampant in chess. We the people cheat like crazy because the incentives are really screwed up, and we've learned that there's a lot of gains from cheating. And so, um, and so we went and we replicated this paper in a different world class, you know, with grandmasters. And not only did not a single one of them stop on the first note, and uh, without explaining the whole game, it won't make sense. But the yeah. people who know the game. The crazy thing was they actually went all the way to the last note, which is absurd. And like no one in their right mind except a really good colluders can ever go to the last note. It was so bad. This is a game where if you stop on the first note, it only costs the researcher a dollar. And if you go to the last note, each time you play it costs like $512. We literally were bankrupted 
Within about two hours of this study, we had only brought, I think, like $3,000 with us in cash. We ran out of money. We had to send our A's all over Philadelphia to ATM machines to try to gather up enough money to pay off the people who were doing our, 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 our subjects, okay? So, but the point of this is, look, we wrote a rejoinder to that paper. And we, in very clear terms, said we believe not just that this was a fluke, that we had gotten different results, but we suspected that there was malfeasance on the part fraud. of fraud. And and in in the two cases we did, this is the same author within a year. Uh, we ended up getting our, our replies published, but the editors ref- made us take out anything about fraud or malfeasance. Uh, the, the 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 unlike in psychology, where there have been huge prices paid by people who have been um, who have been who it's been suggested have been fraudulent, that this. This guy goes along just fine, tenured at a top university. No one holds it against him. There's never been a discussion. I mean, like I, I, I would say in the 10 years since we did this, not a single person has written to me saying, hey, I just read this article. And the only way to make sense about your comment is to think that this author did something fraudulent. But like no one's even talked about, it, not even a discussion. And I think, um, and I think it's, I, I think it really, in many ways, for for us in economics, the problem is that the 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 space of problems that we deal with, like the set of things that fall under the rubric of economics, is enormous and expansive relative to the number of economists. So there's relatively few economists working on any particular problem, and so if it were if it were more like physics, where there were seven big problems, and every economist worked on one of those seven problems. Then if somebody was fraudulent, one-seventh of the profession would be watching and would be focused on it. But so somebody finds out that somebody made a terrible data error on a paper. The 14 economists who care a little bit about that maybe lower that person in their opinion. Maybe they, you know, you know, they, they, they talk about it. But the discipline itself, it just, it just goes right by. Yeah, well, that comes back to earlier discussion, of course, about incentives. And um, we don't like to admit it, uh, but not everyone in the academic world cares about truth. <laughs> we care about, we might care about it along with other things. We care about our reputation, we, yeah. which is part of this, but not the whole thing. We care about our status. We care about our salary. We care about our publication or CV. And, uh, you know, a friend, a former colleague of mine, he's called slicing the salami, was, was the mode of, mm. of, of, of many academics, um, as opposed to, say, tackling one of the big seven questions. You know, that reminds me, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, Branko Milanovic, who's coming onto the program soon to discuss this, tweeted last week or this past week that uh, the economic Nobel Prize, the, the Nobel Prize, to the ex- it's not exactly a Nobel Prize given by the Bank of Sweden, but call it the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize should go to people looking at big questions. Why did China succeed so much in the last decades? Um, what's the source of uh, poverty reduction there in, in India and elsewhere? Uh, these are not easy questions to answer, but they are the deepest, most important questions. And fundamentally, he was critiquing not the research of the people mm-hmm who had gotten the prize this year, say, for improving auctions that the FCC might might do. It's not unimportant. But these are not the seven big things we would make in a list of the questions we should be dealing with. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I, think, I think the, the challenge is that academics 
does not reward answering big questions halfway. Yeah. Academics rewards answering little questions 100% yeah. of the way. I mean, well that's just, that is the role of, 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 um, of, of academics. And so especially, I think, in economics, there has been um, an underinvestment in broad thinking, like, why has China succeeded? Because there's no real academic return to doing that. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, th- that's a, that's something that, you know, old men and women can sit around doing because they, <laughs> they're not trying to get published. But, um, but I don't think, I don't think you can build a career on saying, I'm going to tackle these hard problems. And so, um, I, so I think it's, to me, it's an unfair criticism of the Nobel Committee to, to have them charged with rewarding economists. I mean, it's sensible. Like uh, uh, the Nobel Prize has a lot of sway, so it wouldn't be a crazy thing for the Nobel Prize committee to say, "Look, we think academics gets it wrong, and we have a different set of, set of um, you know, we're we're about the big economic picture, and we're, we're going to reward people who maybe have had zero academic success." I mean, the 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 best thinking about why China has succeeded probably hasn't been done by academics. It's probably been done by all sorts of pundits outside of academics, yeah. and and the Nobel Prize committee, if they wanted, could go and and. Um, and, you know, give a Nobel Prize to somebody like Thomas Friedman or someone like that, who's, you know, people who don't have economics degrees and who don't work in, but who write about big, important, um, you know, questions. Uh, but uh, to me, I think, um, the you know, what the Nobel Prize is, I, I hardly can think you can fault the committee for the set of prizes they've given in the last few years. I think, you know, Given given what they have to choose from, I think they they've picked really uh, path breaking important research. You know, in both in what what you know Milgram Wilson have done and what Esther and Abhijit and, and Michael Kramer did last year. I think to me those were good prizes. Yeah, well, I think his point, and I, I don't think it was so much a critique of the the um, the committee itself, but an urging of the committee to to do something different. Than it's doing now. What it does now is rewards the best academic performance to some extent, not mm-hmm. totally. You know, it's, it's a there's some wiggle room there. But I, I think his point is 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 well taken. I I just want to add, I would not give it to Thomas Friedman, but uh, even if we broadened it, and and I think, um, but your basic point, which is, I'm going to phrase it in a way you might not like. I, I think our profession tries to be like physics, and I think it ought to be more like history. History doesn't pretend to answer the question of what really caused the Civil War, but we learned something from studying the history of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's just not an answer. So maybe instead of the Journal of uh, Replication that you start, uh, maybe you should instead start the Journal of Half-Finished Ideas or Half-Finished uh-huh. Hypotheses or incompl- Imperfect. You know, the Journal of Irreproducible Results, the Journal of mm-hmm. Maybe True Results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's – the history analogy is an interesting one because uh, history tackles big problems, and but history and economics could not be more different. Yeah, because history, the nature of a great piece of history, is that it focuses very much on idiosyncrasies, on on narrow institutions, on the particular identities of the people involved, and nothing could be more antithetical. To economics, especially Chicago economics, then the yeah. idea that you, you know, that, that your tools should be used to describe exactly one moment in time, right? So, I mean, 
going back to you know our our joint mentor Becker, Gary Becker. Look, Gary basically believed that a good economic theory applied everywhere, and um, yep. and in in that kind of a world, um, it's it's um it's harder to to necessarily go and say you know why did China succeed? Because why China succeeded probably has a lot of idiosyncrasy, a lot of history, a lot of particular laws that change at the right time, or a particular entrepreneur. And um, look, I think that it doesn't fit well into how we describe economics right now. Um, but but I, look, I agree. I worry. I worry that economics is going the way of sociology and anthropology, in the sense that we are losing focus on important questions. And on fundamental truths of um, being able to to provide guidance, that we're we're getting caught up in a lot of self-referential um, pursuits of complicated models. Uh, certainly, that was a complaint that was very fairly uh, lodged against macroeconomics after the financial crisis. Um, but I think it's increasingly becoming true in, in microeconomics as well. And I think that the um, I think in my own view is less and less of what academics are doing has a policy relevance um, that is should and is going to influence um, how real decisions get made. Um, in, in part, I think it's because it's too easy. Because when you know when I'm a little bit younger than you, not much, but when I came into the profession thirty years ago, it was at the cusp of new data sets, new techniques like natural experiments, um, and the, uh, you know, and, and it was a little bit hard to go and get data and a pile of data and try to make some reasonable causal inferences from it. And so there were academic rewards to doing it because it was a scarce talent. It was hard. Now that talent is not scarce. Now there's a, a cookie cutter recipe for taking a data, looking at a law change or some other natural experiment and getting a result. So there's no academic reward to it. So people move on to do things where there is an academic reward, like building a complicated structural model that has dynamic optimization in it. Um, and and so, so there's not a lot of effort that's devoted to doing simple things that are useful parameter estimation because it won't get you a good job. And, and I get it's incentives. I don't fault anyone for not doing it. Um, when I write those papers myself, I can't myself. I can't get them published, and so, um, so I write them sometimes just for the pure joy of of knowing. But um, for people who need to be published, um, all the incentives are pushing in a direction that I think is making economics less and less relevant. So that's a good segue. I mean, I think uh, I don't want to be too harsh a psych uh, a psychiatrist or therapist for you, but you know, to some extent, you're. There's a self-reflection there about the nature of your own work, you know, in terms of the scope of it. You did some unbelievably clever and provocative takes on small issues, um, you know, or sumo wrestlers, cheaters. It's fascinating. It's fun to think about. It's not <laughs> at the heart of the good society or the good life. And yet, uh, in recent years, you, you've had some kind of change of heart. We're going to talk about your podcast in a minute called People I Mostly Admire. But as part of that, uh, what I sense is a, a transition for you. You started uh, a center at, at the University of Chicago, uh, Radical Innovation for Social Change, RISC, RISC. And you're trying to look at big pictures and find relatively simple solutions. 
And I want to talk about a couple, a couple of those because they're, they're so interesting. Uh, let's start with uh, monitoring criminals. Sure. So, um, no, so I think you're right. Like my, um, my approach to academics was purely self-interested. I did stuff I thought was fun. And, um, and I really was incredibly lucky that the, the, the discipline accepted me and published my papers in top journals and, and I got accolades. Um, but it's also true. So what happened over time is academics stopped being fun. It stopped being fun for me. Um, in part because I think the, the discipline kind of passed me by. It's a, it's a different discipline now and it values different things and what it values, I don't value. But the other thing that was disturbing a little bit to me was that of all the success that we had, you know, with Freakonomics and popularization and all the success I had within regular academic channels, I honestly think it's fair to say that I have not directly affected in a, in a positive way any public policy anywhere. I mean, the, the, um, the closest we came is Dubner and I did something on drunk walking. Uh, and, um, we just showed that drunk walking was like per mile, something like 10 times more dangerous than drunk driving. And, um, and that led a town in in Alaska to um, to debate whether they should pass a law making it a misdemeanor to walk drunk in that town, which failed. Okay, so it didn't even get passed. But that was the closest <laughs> I think I can ever say to coming to actually having a law um, put into place. So I just reflected on that. And look, I'm not against just having fun and the consumption value of economics. And obviously I've taught a lot of students and maybe had some benefit there, but, um, but as I've gotten older, um, for me now, again, it's just more fun to think about how to affect the real world. And, and could we not have some impact? So I started the center risk and it's kind of the bottom line of risk is, um, I, I, I looked at the incentives being faced by, by a lot of different folks around social issues, whether it's the government, whether it's academics, whether it's uh, nonprofits, and I think all of of those three groups all had a little bit of, uh, had had the wrong incentives, and, and also corporations have the wrong incentives too, like private for profit places. Uh, I don't want to go into the exact details of why I think they have the wrong incentives, but just say nonprofits. What's clear to me, having talked to many people in charge of and working at nonprofits, is that not only do they want to make the world a better place, they want to be liked along the way. Um, so, you know, the big philanthropists are, are deeply concerned about their, their image and their perception. They, they are more often than not philanthropists because they want to be popular and they want to be justified. So, look, I thought, I don't care if people like me. So how about we try to carve out a different space, which is we're going to try to find problems. So, so the problems that haven't been solved, the big social problems, are, haven't been solved either because they're too hard or because they're not that hard, but the answers are really unpopular. So nobody with any common sense would actually go out and try to do it. So I think the the electronic monitoring one is a really good one. So I've studied crime academically for, for 30 years, and uh, I know a lot about crime. I've thought about crime. And I am convinced that there's a very simple technological approach which could have the biggest impact of any crime policy of the last 50 or 100 years, which is simply to... to to use GPS technology and other technologies going forward, but the easy one's GPS, um, on people who are under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Super simple idea. The, the idea is that if, you, um, if someone is being monitored in this way, so you know where they are at all times, uh, we can cross-reference 
their locations with existing databases on, say, where shots are fired uh, or where crimes have been committed. And it creates a tremendous deterrent effect to committing crimes. Okay. And what we've seen empirically is that if you put people on these, um, these bracelets that have GPS, they do virtually no crime. Okay. Now, so far, I'm sure everyone listening is like, oh my God, big brother, you're this awful person. Okay. So, okay. So, but here's the thing. All right. Steve, the reason Steve, we lock people, who's, who's yeah, going to wear yeah. these? Make that clearer. Who's, who's going to wear these? Okay. Uh, um, so, Me and you? So, uh, uh I mean, I'm personally not totally against that, I, I, like, but <laughs> but that's not the plan. The The plan would be, for instance, that people who are in prison right now would be offered a deal. If you want to be let out of prison two years early in return for wearing a bracelet, say, for four years, we'll let you out of prison two years early. If you commit crime, we're going to put those two years of your, um, of your sentence that are deferred, we'll put it back on. Okay, so this would be completely voluntary. In that sense, um, that anyone would have the option of either doing um, doing their full their full sentence or being released early. Um, another a place where we're using it right now is actually on people on pretrial release. So these are people in Cook County who would likely be in the Cook County jail awaiting trial, uh, but um, but they're remanded on you know to house arrest and given these bracelets. Um, so in some sense. That group is a little different because it's not really – I mean, they have a choice. Everyone who's who's wearing this bracelet has a choice of being in Cook County Jail if they would want to be. Uh, many of them might be out on bracelets without GPS technology, absent the technology. And so for them, like they may, there might be a, a third option that will no longer be available to them um, because this technology exists. Okay, but, but to go back to the basic idea, it's really important, is that the reason we lock people up – by and large, is because we fear the crimes they will do if they're not locked up. Okay, so, so that we that there's an enormous. Um, um, if you really knew that people weren't going to commit crimes, you might hold some of them in prison, you know, as some kind of retribution for the mistakes they've made or whatnot. But but by and large, uh, we would have a much smaller prison population if we didn't fear that the people who are in prison are recidiv- you know, re- you know, recidivists and 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 uh, habitual offenders. Okay, so the whole thing becomes a virtual, um, sorry, a virtuous circle, in which if you put technology on folks that make them not do crimes, then you don't have to lock so many people up. And and just simple back the envelope calculations we've done suggest that done really well, this could both reduce the amount of violent crime in society by twenty five percent at the same time that we reduce the prison population by twenty five percent and save a lot of money. But turns out this is an idea. Save money. It's good for everybody, right? The only the you know it really is good for everybody, right? It's good for government saving money. It's good for society because crime has gone down. Uh, it's good for the people who are not locked up. Uh, I think it's like it's a it, for most of the people who are committing a lot of crimes. Uh, crime has does not pay. It's 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 a bad set of choices and the commitment device of knowing that if I commit a crime. I'm actually going to get locked up again. Is is actually works to the benefit even of the people who otherwise would be committing crimes. But look, I'm sure I'm in this in this one two minute version of it, I've done a terrible job of explaining it, which is actually useful for our purposes because almost everyone listening right now is probably saying this is an awful idea. Okay, and you know, you say whatever, like for a hundred different reasons, it's an awful idea. But the simple fact is that if if we can pull this off, okay, and right now we're doing it in Cook County and we're having awesome results in Cook County, that people are going to eventually v- realize that 
as poorly as I've explained it, this is a really powerful idea. And this is a good thing for society. And it's not Big Brother in a bad way. It's, it's, it's using technology in a really effective way that's good for everybody. Okay, but no nonprofit would ever have touched this idea. And, um, you know, it's it, the only reason we're kind of making any headway is that the Cook County Sheriff, a guy named Tom Dart, is brilliant and thoughtful and willing to take chances that other people won't. And so we've been able to, you know, get, get these bracelets on 1,500 people, uh, more than anywhere else in the country. And the results are really good. And 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 how how lucky did we happen to be that the timing was such that COVID, the number one hotspot for COVID in America was the Cook County Jail, but we had these bracelets available so that um, the, the sheriff's office did an amazing job of doing so many things. But one of them was having the option to use these bracelets to get people out of jail. Uh, and it turned out already to, to, to pay enormous social dividends. So oh, that's kind of the gist of what we're yeah. doing. We're trying to, to take hard problems and to take a kind of chicago hard-nosed, look, whatever it takes, thoughtful approach to solving them. And not worry about, um, you know, not worry about short-term repercussions and criticisms and, and really be thinking about in the long run, is this going to give us an important answer we need? Well, you know, when you describe it, I find it kind of creepy too. However, it, it's a classic example, I think, of many policy suggestions where people go, I don't like that. And I always say, well, compared to what? You mean, because you got to remember mm-hmm. that the alternative isn't not having it. The alternative is... The U.S. prison system, which is pretty horrific on many di- different dimensions, um, which we don't need to go into. But I think the general point about policy improvements, it, it's so hard for people to, you know, you know, one of my favorite examples of this would be the drug war. Um, you know, I think drugs should be legal of all kinds, not just reg- recreational drugs, but pharmaceutical drugs. I, I think I don't like the FDA. I think it should be up to personal people's choices, and I think we should treat people like grown-ups. And we shouldn't subsidize them either, by the way. It's another little side note. Uh, uh, but th- but and we allow third-party nonprofits to pay for them when we think people can't afford them for pharmaceuticals. We have, there are a lot of things to add to the story, but just just take the basic claim when I say oh, we should end the drug war. But but tr- people say to me, but drug use, drug use is terrible. Well, yeah, it's not great for some people. They make mistakes. But how about the last 40 years of people being killed in the street and the corruption of the police department. And I mean, gosh, doesn't that count for something in the calculus? It should. I, so, you know, I think people often use nirvana. You know, Harold Dempsey's talked about this, uh, the nirvana fallacy. It's like, oh, oh, and I have in mind a world where where the people running the program are, are angels, not, not human beings. That's my policy solution. <laughs> and that solution's not yeah. available, folks. So, you know, you can be pragmatic. You can stand on principle and say, you know, as a, as a First Amendment person, I don't like this, some aspect of this. Or I do think there's a, a surveillance worry here that it could spread and be lead to technology that might be dangerous for tyranny. I, those are legitimate questions. But if you're just going to talk about whether it works, don't just tell me everything that's bad about it and ignore the other things that are bad about the status quo. End of rant. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, so the criticism – so. A lot of the kind of more left-leaning uh, NGOs that I've approached about this become apoplectic and they say, this is a, such an invasion of privacy. And to your point, I say, look, prison? <laughs> 
compared to prison, this is like a, this is like a, you know, joy. literally, it's like freedom. I it's mean, literally but, a walk in the and, park. Um, it but, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and um, but it's but it's um, but it doesn't hold. It, it's it's exactly your point about this nirvana. And um, but you know, one thing that I I, I believe without a lot of evidence, uh, there are two pieces of it. One thing I know for sure is that ideas are not enough to win the day. So, you know, so if if as an academic, I go to a group and say, hey, this would be a great idea to do. I have been doing that for 30 years, and, and many of the ideas may have been terrible, but I think some of them have been okay, and none of them get adopted. And so really what I hope that my risk center can do is to to take this intermediate stage that entrepreneurs do all the time, which is to go from an idea to a, a proof of concept. So we can yeah. go, we'll do this in Cook County and we'll put this on 3,000 people eventually. And we'll show that actually they don't commit very much crime at all. And it helps them show up, you know, we are, have ways to contact them so we can see if they're not going there, uh, their, their, um, their, um, uh, uh, trial appointment, their, their trial dates. And we can remind them and, and tell them to do it. And we can do lots of things and we'll just show that it actually saved a bunch of money and that they were happy. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that we're hoping we can do because, you know, it's not my goal to build a company or nonprofit that is, you know, producing, you know, a million ankle bracelets to try to deal with the, the prison. But, but I, my hope is that by doing this, uh, it'll become easy, turnkey, that, that the next, uh, you know, the, the New York City you know, the, the New York City, you know, or New York State would say, hey, this worked in Cook County. This is easy to adopt. Uh, we've got open source software we've developed now that we can give to anyone who wants to use, you know, use these technology. So that's what we're trying to do. And, um, and, uh, and what's interesting is this is a great case where it is totally obvious. There's no big idea here. It's like completely clear. Like if you really think about it, how is it, you know, h- how is it that our criminal justice system, which has jurisdiction over the lives of you know a million people out on the streets doesn't know where they are when cell phone technology is out there um, and you know so it's obvious to do but it's one of those things where it's just you know it it just hasn't happened there's been you know been twenty years for it to happen and there's not there's just no thrust even pushing there so that's what that's kind of that's the best of what we hope to do at at my center called risk I love the startup mindset. Uh, I love the recognition that packaging matters, marketing matters. It's not irrelevant. I, you know, I, I think of so many academics who've told me about their great idea, and I'm thinking, you can't even explain it to me, and I'm an economist, and you think you're going to get some bureaucrat or or senator to get behind it? You, you got to. It's got to be simple. It's got. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think Milton Friedman yeah. was such an incredible policy entrepreneur. He was a great explainer, first of all. He's a great teacher. But more than that, he figured out policy interventions. The volunteer army would be an example, uh, a voucher for schools that, that you know, they, they were flawed. They were imperfect. We might prefer something else to them. But the reason they got any traction at all was that he could explain it. And then you could explain it to your neighbor and say, what do you think? And I think so many of, of our colleagues who want to change the world – um, neglect that little tiny piece. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. Maybe you have an understanding. You've talked to a lot more economists in a in an interviewing kind of way than I have. But what has shocked me is all the economists I've talked to now, 
are very articulate in talking about many things. The one exception is their own research. When they talk about their own research, it makes no sense. And I know the research, so I try to then rephrase it in a much yeah. more straightforward way. And um, then they usually argue, no, no, that's not quite right, because it leaves out this one tiny element. But it's it's interesting to me. Have you found that as you've interviewed? That's a fascinating question. That, that the question. thing that economists are worst at talking about is their own actual research. I wouldn't say that that way, but it, because I don't delve deeply into the research, the nuts and bolts. So it's maybe not not the right question for me, but it reminds me of something that's I think that there's a deep insight there, which is the following. If, if you read something in the paper about something you know about, um, you have a hobby. Not not economics, not research, mm-hmm. but you have a hobby and, and you read an article in the paper about it and you realize, oh, my gosh, this has got so many things wrong about how we be- believe – how we act in this hobby or how, how we actually actually do the thing that we're talking about. Oh, it's awful. You know, it's the way I think of Bill Belichick when he reads articles about the Patriots in the, even in a sophisticated publication, he, he must, he doesn't read them, obviously. You know, and that's why he finds questions. He's the coach of the New England Patriots, for those at home don't know him. Uh, he's not very tolerant of ignorant questions. And I think probably all questions are pretty ignorant to him. You know, he, he, he kind of has a, such a deeper understanding. So the idea of him reading an article about what the Patriots ought to do this week is just is ludicrous. So when you and I read an article in the newspaper about something, we know we always go like, wow, boy, they really got this. And not just it's it's superficial. There, there are mistakes in it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody has the occasionally has the realization that, well, wait a minute, that might be true of everything they write. Hmm. Now what? <laughs> and so – what I'm thinking of, though, is when, when an academic talks about their own work, they're writing uh, – it's like the way they would critique a newspaper summary of their Nobel Prize. It's like, oh, no, you're missing all the subtlety, the depth. Oh, you got to add this caveat. It's why, in general, academics are not good communicators because they believe in caveats. That, that's the essence of, the, of, our, of often what we do in, in so-called science. We have to say, but – and remember this. And so if you leave that out in your summary of their work, they're going, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Cause, cause it's so much richer and deeper than that. And I think that's that phenomenon. They know too much about their own work. It's not that they're bad communicators necessarily. Cause they, as you said, they could be good communicators about someone else's work, mm-hmm. but about their own work. You know, it's kind of like saying, uh, how would you rank your, uh, your oldest child on a scale of one to 10? Oh, Wait a minute. I can't do that. There's too much. Let, let me write a 60-page a, a essay about what's special about my child because mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of nuance there. And I think that's, I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. That's a good uh, let's, let's close about and talk about your podcast. Um, it's called People I Mostly Admire. The word mostly uh, could be interpreted in two different ways there. Uh, so how do you mean it? Do you mean it both ways? Uh, I mean both of those actually. Um, I because um, I am interviewing people. I'm, I do mostly mostly I'm interviewing people I admire, and they're people that I mostly admire that I'm that I'm interviewing. Um, it's it's kind of different than what. So you've done an amazing public service by bringing so many economists into the you know the, the forefront, letting people giving people an audience. I think I'm locked. Am I locked? No, you're good. 
Okay, okay, sorry. Okay, no, I'm just so, so stunned. So, uh, I'm just so stunned by the by yeah. your observation. I, it looked like <laughs> I was frozen. Now keep going. I'm trying to keep a straight okay. face here. Okay. Appreciate the kind yeah. words. So, Go ahead. You know, you, yeah. So you've so you've done a real public service by giving so many economists a chance to talk. And I'm actually trying to do something slightly different, which is um, I'm sort of this is not really an economics podcast in the usual sense that I'm trying to to um, talk to a very broad group of people, people who are um, who are innovative, who are rule breakers, who are trying to do the right thing, who maybe have um, you know quirks about them, and to um, and in my own you know weird way, you know, reflecting my own weirdness of how I think about the world, to to try to have fun, smart conversations, and um, so. But I, I honestly put the word mostly in because. Um, because I wanted to be able to interview everyone and I didn't want, and including some people who I think might be horrendous. I haven't interviewed anyone so far who's horrendous. I mean, um, uh, but, but partly uh, I called it, you know, we call it that because look, it's a little, the whole thing's a little bit tongue in cheek. I mean, my whole, my whole ethos is about having fun and whatnot. And, um, and the idea, you know, someone suggested like, why don't we call people you, I admire? And I'm like, well, that's like really earnest and that's not really the spirit of what Freakonomics is trying to do. Um, but, but it's been, you know, it's fun. I mean, you have a lot of experience interviewing. I was surprised at how hard interviewing is compared to being interviewed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that being interviewed, whatever, blah, 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 whatever I say, oh, it's stupid, whatever, no one will, remember. but there's something I find, I, I feel a real um, obligation as an interview. I feel a real weight as an, an interviewer. So, um, it's, you know, kind of good to do new things as you get older. And, and uh, for me, the, the um the deep research um they're, they're very you know people this this psychological concept of flow where you really like work really hard at something and you become completely immersed in it i don't have that very much uh in what i do interestingly the preparation for my interviews is very much a flow state for me i become extremely focused in a way that i haven't and i and i study what people have done in the past in a way that i don't usually and uh, and it's it's somehow the intensity to it I found to be a really surprise. I hadn't expected it, but it's been you know flow is both good and bad. I mean, flow is kind of enjoyable. In the other sense, like flow is like very intense and um, you know and, and and tiring. But so that's what we're doing. It's been it's uh, an experiment. Well, I, I appreciate the kind words. I you know I I have given a platform to a lot of economists. But like you, I feel like uh, I find our profession a lot less interesting than I did five years ago. So I'm interviewing much, many fewer economists. You are my exception uh, in many ways. Yeah. You're as about traditionally an economist as you one could get. But you've also gone in a non-traditional direction and for a while. So um, I'm um, I appreciate the compliment, but I also and I also appreciate the recognition that. This is a hard, it can be a hard job, and the prep is um, is fascinating because what I try to do I, I don't know if you try to do this, but I try to think about a narrative arc for the conversation. I'm, you know, there's a tension between letting the conversation go where it might go and be spontaneous, mm-hmm. which people like enjoy. It's like fun, but I also have this sort of ed- not sort of I have this educational agenda. I want your ideas to get out in the world. And and I want to react to them and let listeners hear that conversation and learn from it. And so I have an arc before I get started of where it's going to go. It doesn't always go there, but at the, any moment, I'm constantly trying to decide whether I should pull it back. And you 
listeners to this conversation could hear me say that. Oh, we'll get to that later because I've been back in my mind. I've got the whole thing mapped out, but not literally. I'm not literally going to just ask question after question because I need it to stay a certain – there's a certain flow in this back and forth if it goes well, which is really special, right? Uh, yeah. And there are moments when you feel it. And Well, let's, let's – um, I want to close with um, – with the question that that you have asked a number of your guests, which uh, is a question I increasingly think about, which is, um, what advice do you have for the good life? Uh, how to live well, and um, that's a question that used to be at the center of university education. It used to be at the center of what we once called, without shame, Western civilization. Now you're not supposed to say that without shame, but I, I say it without shame. Uh, I think it's the central question of of human human existence. I think it's the central question of that any person needs to confront as they at least as they grow up, and it may not happen until they're in their older years. But uh, and it's hard to think of when you're younger. But I think that's the central question, and I'm curious what you may have learned in asking that question, and what you yourself think is. Where you what you've learned in, in heading toward an answer to that question? Yeah, let me back off that but one one level, which is I think there's something society, two things society could do in education that would make it easier for people to live good lives. And so um, I think one it. of those is I I think we I think we make a real mistake in in edu- in the educational system by not giving um, mental health topics. Um, uh, a place in our curriculum. So things like um, everything from, you know, how to deal with trauma to you know, I don't know, what you might call mindfulness or something to, to thinking about how conflict resolution. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff that for whatever reason, we don't think of it as things that schools could do, maybe because they can't do them well. But, um, but if I think about the practical things that students, the kids could be taught that would make their lives better. Um, it seems to me that's right at the forefront. And I think it's only historical accident that we, we don't teach those things in school. So I think society owes it. We society owes it to our next generation to start doing that. Now, completely on the flip side, I think it's the same with data. So I think like completely like it seems opposed, but like, I think, I think society owes it to our next generation of students to teach them how to think about data and use data because data are so important. And I think so. I think our schools are failing on these two completely different dimensions, which is that by the archaic curriculum we're teaching uh, is not teaching kids how to function in the real world and function in the real world. Number one, uh, these like mental health tools, I think could be really powerful. And number two, I think data is just so important. And, and it's like crazy that what we teach in math class and uh, when we could be teaching kids sort of the rudiments of data. Can I think I, it's a real disaster. Can I comment on that before sure. you go to the next point, which is sure. uh, I went on my first uh, mindfulness uh, meditation retreat when I was, I think, 60. Waited a little late. Uh, it, it was transformative in many ways. And and um, it it is a challenge to teach that well. I think it's taught badly in many settings. So I think that is part of the problem. But teaching people to be self-aware about their own psychological quirks uh, I wasn't prepared for the psychotherapeutic part of the retreat, which was embedded in the silence of that retreat. And I think it's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. And 
it's part of uh, going back to Western civilization. Uh, the unexamined life is not worth living, is um, said Socrates, and I, he he was onto something. Um, mm-hmm. the, on the on the air on the question of data, uh, my wife's a, a high school math teacher, and um, when she has come home and told me how much statistics they've put into the curriculum and how much is being put into curricula elsewhere around the country. Uh, it's kind of frightening. So I'm very sympathetic. I think I think it's incredibly uh, important that we teach young people about uncertainty and risk mm-hmm. and how to think about data in that context. The work of, of um, Asim Nicholas Taleb comes to mind as someone who I think has certainly helped me think about risk in a way that I was not able to do despite a PhD in economics. And I think those basic, some of those fundamental ideas are very powerful. But unfortunately, what actually happens, we say, I need to teach people about data. It's like, oh, great. Well, let's teach them what the mean is. And we'll show them how to do run a regression using a statistics package. And, you know, it's like saying uh, people should learn about how to deal with money. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, let's have a stock market contest. It's like, no, don't do that. That's the last thing you want to do. Anyway, so I just I just wanted to react to that. You can react to that back, or you can move on yeah. to the good life if you'd like. No, look, I, I think both. Of, I agree. It might not be easy to do data or um, or kind of mindfulness, but but to punt on it uh, or to do what we're doing now, it just seems like a mistake. Yeah. Okay, now let's go back to uh, like an individual. That. So, um, I mean, life is an arc, and I have a uh, so I have a few like simple things that I believe to be true, um, and one of them is I th- I really believe based partly on data that people get stuck in the status quo of bias too much that p- that people don't make changes they should and um, and that simple advice I give to everyone is that um, if you really are stuck, if for like a month you've been like, you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, God, I, I really feel like I should end this relationship or I should quit my job. And, and months at a time and you, and you just can't pull the trigger, almost for sure the right answer is you should pull the trigger. And um, I've done actually an impar- like a randomized experiment where I had people flip coins over it. And, um, and I think it's just, it, it, it just, in both the data and the intuitive story makes sense, which is that a lot of the costs of change are upfront and many of us are hyperbolic discounters or are, are, are fear change. But so I, I think one good rule for living a good life is that if you're really stuck that um, to, to have faith that making the big change is likely to be the right path, uh, right course. Um, the, the other thing that as I've gotten older, I've come to understand is that life is long, not short. I, I was always in a hurry, I think. And I always feared that if I took a step off the path, that, that it would be, a, it would be disastrous. But I've looked at so many people who are wildly successful. And it's often the steps off the path, I think, that have been the key to their eventual success and, and, and the way they go. And, um, and so, I kind of, you know, I, I'm much more tolerant with myself and with others of not being in a hurry of, you know, like, you know, I got my PhD in three years, which wasn't a good thing or a bad thing. You know, I just did it. But like, that was like, the goal was just like, I wanted to get stuff done. And I think there's, um, that there's, uh, 
that is a useful mistake that I think, um, but I think you were going to react to something about that. No, go ahead. No? Okay. Um, and what else? You know, and I, I still think, so I've always believed that it's really important to have fun and to do what you like along the way. But, um, but I also think that um, people need to be realistic about that. That, um, you know, most of the time, you know, doing the thing you love doesn't lead to anywhere particularly good. And mostly where it leads to is not loving that thing anymore by the time you've, you know, done it for a couple of years. And that's the part about going slow, which I think is okay, right? So I think it's okay to say, look, I'd like nothing more to be a rock star. And then to go and to try and be a rock star. Of course, you're not going to be successful because no one's successful, you know, with a few exceptions. Okay, that's where if you have, if you listen to my other advice, which is, look, when you're not sure if you should be a rock star anymore, you got to stop being a rock star. Where you really hurt yourself is where you start being a rock star and then you never stop trying to be a rock star, even though the writing was on the wall a, a long time before that. And then the last thing I would say which is um, something that I've always tried to do, but much more so now than before. It's just like human. I think there's a lot of value in human decency, in being able of just like trying to be nice to people and doing the right thing. And not, not necessarily even because it's good for other people, but just because it's just easier to live your life. If you um, kind of have a rule where you try and be nice to people and you give people the benefit of the doubt and stuff. I've just found it easier like being a jerk is hard work. Uh, it takes a lot of time and effort, and but just trying to be thoughtful and you know, still you say no. I, you know, I say no to people a hundred times a day, but um, but I err on the side of um, you know, offering a compliment when I can, or 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 telling people when I think they've done something well, and and to me that's uh, you know, or, or trying to help out somebody young when I don't have to. Um, I don't know. I get I get personally I get a lot of satisfaction from that. My guest today has been Stephen Levitt. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Ah, my pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.